0: Hey guys, you're listening to episode 71 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking to Peter Greer, CEO of Hope International. Hey there. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. Today we're talking to Peter Greer, CEO of Hope International and author of multiple best-selling books on the topics of poverty and microfinance. Since inception, Hope International has provided over $1.5 billion to more than 2.5 million small business owners across the world in the form of microfinance loans in order to empower them to break the cycle of poverty in their own communities. Stay tuned to hear Peter share how hope is working around the world today. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have a growing community on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to our interview. All right. We're here with Peter Greer from Hope International. Peter, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about who you are and how you got to where
1: you are today? Yeah. Well, I grew up with this interest in two primary areas. I had this interest in in business and I had this interest in global missions. And when I was a kid, I thought those were two different worlds. I thought those were two different activities, but I was studying in Moscow and for the first time heard someone who said, hey, did you ever consider combining those interests? And he introduced me to the concept of microenterprise development and using business as a tool to alleviate extreme poverty as we share the hope of Jesus and that captivated me i had never heard anything like that i was captivated and then after graduation had the opportunity to go and put some of these principles into practice initially in cambodia and then in zimbabwe and lived in rwanda for 3 years and really trying to figure out what does it look like for the church to address extreme poverty as it shares the good news of jesus so that initial idea that captivated me It hasn't let go. And now I've been doing this for several decades and still passionate about exploring ways that the church can be at the forefront of sharing the good news of Jesus and alleviating extreme poverty. So that led me to Hope International was in graduate school, did another project and did the project on Hope International and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And now for the last 18 years, I've been working with hope at a time that we've been able to grow and expand, but still with that same core idea How do we bring together global missions and business and job creation? Yeah, Jesus and jobs. That's what I want my life to be about. (laughs) Peter, when you were first captivated by
2: that message or realization, what happened that eventually led to
1: you becoming part of Hope International? Yeah, so initially I was with an organization called World Relief. And I remember when I filled out the application for a job, it first of all asked, are you willing to go, do you have any geographic constraints? And I was like, absolutely not. I will go anywhere to try this tool out. Second question, are you willing to work in a war zone? Absolutely. I just want (laughs) to try this out. Do you need running water? Absolutely not. Like I just really wanted to try this tool. And so was open to wherever in the world they needed someone. And so that led to my first job, in a rural branch office in Cambodia. But then in graduate school, that's when I first heard about Hope International, the organization that I'm with now. And it was really doing research in the Democratic Republic of Congo, trying to figure out the intersection of economic development and clean water technology. What are the business opportunities to provide a sustainable solution to clean water? And I turned my paper in in graduate school and I was thankful to have that done, but the best thing happened was not the grade, but I got a job offer from Hope International. So after I graduated, I was able to join Hope. And what drew me was clarity of mission. It was very clear. This was an organization that was focused on doing a small number of things, focused on doing it with excellence and unapologetic about not just addressing physical poverty, but also doing it in such a way that the local church would be supported and ultimately that people would come to know Jesus. So I love that mission. And again, I just consider it an enormous privilege to still be part of it. So we had the privilege of having Jeff Rutt on a couple
0: episodes back, and he shared some of the kind of early days of hope and how some of that came together. But for anyone who hasn't, Heard that background? Maybe you can just give us a little bit of a foundation about how Hope kind of came to be and then now what it looks like today and the type of work that you guys are doing.
1: Yeah. And I have the highest level of respect for Jeff. I'm so glad that you had him as a guest on the podcast. And Please do listen to that for the full story. But just, you know, real quick background is that Jeff was partnering with the church in Zaporozhye, Ukraine, and after a rather traditional partnership of sending food and supplies and helping build a building, eventually the pastor there, Pastor Petrenko, said, your help isn't helping us anymore. Isn't there a way for you to help us help ourselves? And that really was the change from more of a handout model to the hand up helping individuals have jobs. And so the way that that kind of was formed was realizing individuals in Ukraine and around the world, just because they're living in poverty does not mean that they are not very capable of working, of providing for their families. And just because someone is poor, That says more about the circumstance that they're living in, not their capacity as an individual. And again, especially for those of us that believe the truth of scripture in the opening pages, we see God created every single one of us in the image of God. And that means there is creativity, latent potential in every single one of us. And so, yeah, that's really what we tried to do. Figure out how do we help individuals unlock the doors to employment And then everything that we do is in a group-based format as well, where individuals are engaging with scripture together, they're supporting each other, they're helping each other when their business might be experiencing a challenge. And yeah, it's just been incredible to see the impact over the history of hope. Peter, can you tell us a little bit more about microfinance,
2: microenterprise,
1: and how those are leveraged for impact? So after Jeff was in Ukraine and had the pastor request for a hand up instead of a handout. He ended up doing some reading, and one of the things that he found was the example of the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh. And Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Peace Prize, I believe it was 2005, for his pioneering work in providing capital, investment capital, to entrepreneurs that would have no ability to access financing or an investment or a loan or even a safe place to save money because of their context of poverty. And so Jeff read that article, reached out to a bunch of different organizations, and everyone said, nope, that's not going to work in the former Soviet Union in the mid to late 90s. And so Jeff, as the entrepreneur, said, all right, let's test that hypothesis by actually (laughs) doing it. And I love the entrepreneurial spirit, which is it doesn't take no as an answer. It says, let's try it. Let's learn, let's tweak, let's adapt, let's adjust, but let's move forward. And so he initially gave about 12 loans, about $5,000 in total to these entrepreneurs, and they were able to repay the loan. And then the good news was after that model worked in this one community, word spread quickly. And so there was very much this excitement about how can we help other entrepreneurs? And one of the great things about The model about the methodology is that it becomes a self-sufficient model as well. So as individuals repay, they cover the expenses of what it takes to provide the access to capital. So we have now these self-supporting entities around the world and over 20 countries where we operate that allow us to have a growing team of almost like self-supporting missionaries, if you will, that are investing in entrepreneurs. And yeah, it's just been incredible to watch the impact grow and expand. And at this point, we've served now 2.5 million entrepreneurs, and I think we're just getting going. So just to kind of see how the nuts and
0: bolts of that whole process fits together, is there a story maybe that comes to mind of an entrepreneur in any one of these communities that you guys work in who kind of goes through this process and how the different pieces fit together from start to finish.
1: Yeah, that is the highlight of my job, Gillen, is spending time in the places where we serve. And actually, in two weeks from today, I'm going to be going to Ukraine to spend time with the staff there. And as you know, there has been a lot going on in Ukraine, so trying to figure out how do we... Yeah. Encourage. How do we have a retreat together? And then also, how do we think about at this moment in time, what does it look like to help in the rebuilding of Ukraine as well? But I love spending time with entrepreneurs. And you know, one entrepreneur, her name is Severa. She started with a $30 loan in Rwanda. And at that point in Rwanda, it was after the genocide that just destroyed the very fabric of so much. And so Severa was left in a very difficult circumstance, And so she recognized, though, she needed to work to provide for her family. And so she got a $30 loan to sell peanuts in the market. And as she was able to receive that investment, start to grow her peanut business, I love what she said. She said, I came to realize that I was quite capable. And that's actually upstream from the entrepreneurial journey, right? Upstream is to actually believe you can do this. You have what it takes. You don't need to wait for someone else's charity You have what it takes. And so she realized that. And then she expanded and diversified. She went from peanuts into agriculture. So from selling peanuts to then growing them. And then she got into real estate. She had some rental properties. And then she realized, wait, I could have a painting business that would do this. And so she has now over 50 employees in the different enterprises that she has. And she is not just growing these enterprises, but I love the work that you guys are doing and the movement of generosity. This is not a North American movement. The movement of generosity is a global movement for anyone who understands just how much we've received, just how much we've been given. How can we not help and share with others? And so Severa, she now has adopted eight orphans into her home. She has provided clean water for her community. She provides health insurance for her employees. And she is having a dramatic impact. And so, you know, finish line, she has it and she is living it. She is living with extraordinary generosity. And I love that. I love that example because it's not just business, right? It's the entrepreneurial journey, but then you have to ask the question, for what end? It's great that she's grown her enterprise, but she believes, as I do, that we are blessed To be a blessing. We are not to hold on. We are to live with open hands and say, God, who have you put around me? And what does it look like for me to live and love well, just as you have loved us so exceptionally lavishly as well?
2: Peter, in that story, I find it so interesting that you talk about this generosity movement being worldwide, but it kind of looks different in certain places, I think. In North America, I think generosity is, you know, do you Give to the church or to XYZ organization. In this example though, you said that not even a $30 gift, but a $30 loan had a transformational impact. Not only did she begin to have confidence and believe in her own capability, but she was able to use that belief to build and have an impact on others. And that's such a small amount for so many Americans. If someone said, hey, you can go change lives for $30. But the thing is, she paid that loan back, and now that can be recycled to continue to have impact. Can you share a little bit about how that sustainable model has impacted the way
1: that Hope International operates? The simplest Way to answer the question when you say, how has that impacted Hope International? I would say it has allowed us to think at a different type of scale. Most of the models that I've seen, it's we need to keep going back and raising funds for the same community over and over and over But what I love about this is it becomes a model that covers its operating expenses on its own. And then we can think about growing, going into new geographies, new countries, and that allows us to think not how can we help just in one community, but I would love for the church to say, how can we impact millions of lives around the world? And again, that's one of the great things about this model is that it allows the operating expenses to be covered over time by the entity. And so, you know, cost per impact that decreases over time as the model grows. So I love that. And please hear me like poverty is complex. There is huge need for a wide variety of interventions. There is not just one intervention that's going to have an impact, but you're talking to me. I am obviously very excited about my (laughs) niche that we are in. And yeah, so anyway, that's the way that it allows us to think at a you know, dream beyond just where we currently are. And that's one of the great things that, again, we have about a, we have now over a thousand full-time staff members and the vast majority of their support comes from the activities, earned income, if you will. So then when we get other donations, it allows us to grow. It allows us to expand, to explore new geographies and not just to cover the same services for the same set of people year after year after year.
0: I know you guys have an impressive 97% repayment rate of the loans that hope provides. And I'd love to hear how you guys achieve that. And, you know, some of what goes into such a successful model.
1: There is a lot that goes into that. And I am so thankful for the global team. I'm so thankful for the other organizations that we've partnered with and sharing best practices, but I believe at the very core of what is behind that, you know, I was in Burundi and I remember there was a construction project that was happening real close to where we were. And the individuals were essentially making their own nails. They had pieces of metal and they were hammering them out that then they were able to go and use. And just the work ethic that they had, they were doing that when I left in the morning, they were doing that when I came home at night. And anyone who says that If individuals in poverty would just work a little harder, I think they have not spent a whole lot of time in places of poverty. (laughs) Work ethic is not the challenge. Individuals are working really hard just to survive in these communities. But that's where when you can combine that with a little more training, with investment capital, with a community that are going to rally behind them. That's where we see such incredible work. So what's behind the 97% repayment rate? I would say it is the work ethic of the families that we serve around the world. But then maybe related to that is how do you find those individuals with the work ethic? And that's where the model within the community banking model or methodology that Muhammad Yunus is credited with, with kind of discovering, that's where the methodology matters as well. And the methodology is really built on an idea that if the three of us were reading through applications for an investment in Burundi, I don't think the three of us would make a great committee to know what are the opportunities in that community. But who would make great decisions? Individuals within that community. So within a group, they don't have to convince HOPE International alone. We would have to convince each other before we would get a loan that we are creditworthy that we have the right character that we have the right work ethic that we have the right business plan and idea, and then the kicker in this model is, and if the you know the three of us are in a group and I decide to go and run away with my capital, guess who has said they will serve as the collateral the two of you, so you would have the privilege of covering. My indiscretion. So what does that do? That means that there is a very significant, in our language, it would be an underwriting process, a very high bar of what it takes because it is not just screening from an international organization. It is screened by the community. And so that's really what's behind the repayment rate. Individuals with the right work ethic that have already been screened by their community. And then if one of us doesn't repay, the other ones have said, I'll step up and repay for that individual. And one just final thought on that is I've seen this time and time again. What that means, these groups meet, whether it's every week or every other week. If I start having a challenge with my business, say I, you know, I'm trying to get into trying to raise chickens. We're trying to have eggs for our community. And I've got a significant problem in getting food for those chickens. Who do you think is going to be the first few people to say, let me help you, Peter? It's going to be the other individuals in my group. So it's a positive incentive to rally behind each other. We have, we're all in this together. And the community really does show that it's possible to make steps forward together.
2: So, Peter, when you talk about this community model and working in 20 different countries with so many different individuals and groups, what opportunities have been presented to
1: advance the spread of the gospel through the work that Hope International does? Yeah, thanks, Cody. And Again, I would say that really is the differentiator with Hope International. There's other organizations that are doing great economic development programs. We really want to do it in such a way that the gospel is central. And a few years ago, a friend and I, a colleague, Chris Horst, and I wrote a book called Mission Drift and just recognized how easy it is to drift from that core-centered identity and how can we make sure that that is not our story and there's a lot that I could share, Cody, in response to that, but but we try to simplify everything. So at its core, it's three different pieces. It's who we are. So we want to make sure that we are hiring individuals, not just with the right technical skills, not just the things that show up, but the right commitment to say, I want my life to be about sharing the good news of Jesus. So it starts with who we are and then also growing in our faith journey as we are working here. The second piece is then how we work. And that is built into the operations. So every time these groups gather together, they start by praying for each other. They worship together. They read scripture in a discipleship-based model before they get to the work of the lending and savings and training and all that. And so it really is this mixture of almost like a small group along with an investment banker relationship all kind of intertwined as well. So I guess what I'm saying is it's woven into our operational model, that it is part of who we are and what we do. So who we are, how we work, and then the third piece is how we serve the church. There's going to be a time that Hope International will not be in these communities, but the church existed for thousands of years before Hope International, and we believe is going to exist until Christ's return. And so we really want to actively partner with the church and in many of the countries with our savings cube model you know, individuals in that community see this as an outreach of their local church, as opposed to an you know outside organization coming in. So, who we are, how we work, and how we serve the church is how we maintain that yeah centeredness on the full and complete mission that we have.
0: Kind of related to that, when you guys are going into a new community, what is the ideal? situation that you're hoping for in five years or 10 years down the line for that community in terms of the relationship with hope or what that community looks like or the change that has occurred on kind of a macro level in that community?
1: Keelan, I think about a community that I visited that similarly started with just a small amount of investments in this group. It was a savings group, which is part of our methodology where it's not us having external capital that's invested in the community, but it's a training model where they start pooling their own funds and then they start lending that amount to each other. So with this methodology, there were 23 women. They started with 10 cents each that they were saving. And so 23 women, 10 cents a week. So For the next 23 weeks, every single one of them had access to $2.30. And, you know, one bought charcoal and one bought one chicken. And they started having these micro, micro, micro enterprises. But as they started this, then the next week they got together next cycle, we call it. And they started saving closer to a dollar. And then instead of $2.30, then they had $23 as their investments that they were able to make. And when I visited them, what I love about this group is that they demonstrated the answer to your question. There was a level where they had continued to innovate and create products that provided for their kids. They were supporting schools in their community. They wanted to drive me to the church that they had built with their own funds. And it wasn't complete yet, but it was almost done. And they had built this, they were the primary benefactors of that church. And every single one of them had about $800 in savings. And what does that mean? That means that if your child gets sick, your child can get healthcare. It means that they had been able to invest in getting power into their community. And so you look at the before and after picture and you notice the difference. You notice the difference in the health of the kids, in the education, in the vibrancy of the church, in the physical infrastructure. And most of all, you see it reflected in the belief that I guess it's hope, right? At its core, it's that it's possible to make progress. It's possible that the challenges we're facing today can be dealt with. And there is a vibrancy that comes when you believe that. And I got to see all of that in one little community outside of Kigali, Rwanda. One of the things that I think is really key to that story is that this
0: was a group of women, and I'm sure. The opportunities available to women varies greatly among the different communities that you work in. But I'd just love to hear the kind of specific, unique benefits of finding women and empowering women entrepreneurs in these communities and what you have seen, how that
1: affects the communities and what you guys have learned through that. Absolutely. And there's been a lot of additional research that has been done in the broader sector to understand the impact. But for us as an organization, we serve everyone. And so it's about 70% of the individuals that we serve are women, about 30% men. And part of the reason for that is men, a lot of times they will go and work in whether it's mining or whether it is joining a militia or something, and oftentimes leaving women at home to care for the kids. And I believe there are few things more powerful than a mom that is going to provide for her kids. There is an incredible drive. And so, yeah, 70% of the individuals that we serve are women and High level of motivation. And, you know, there's a proverb in Burundi that says, a woman is the heart of the home. And we see this and the research bears it out that when you invest in a woman, you are directly investing in the education and the children, the next generation as well. And we see that time and time again. So yeah, we love that. And I am so grateful. Again, we're talking about Severa. There are so many other people like Severa that it's not just about business success. It's investing in their kids, investing in their families, investing in their church, investing in their community. And the positive impact is felt by breaking the cycle of intergenerational poverty, not just addressing the poverty for today.
2: Something that seems like a massive opportunity is the indirect Benefits of hope being involved in a community. And by that, I mean, if you work with one group, for example, and there is a success story like you just laid out, it kind of generates a lot of interest in the community. I would imagine if you saw that happen to your neighbor, you'd want to be over finding out what changed. And when that is rooted in scripture and the gospel is at the center of that conversation. And then the hand up model empowers those individuals and those groups that it just gets the whole community talking. And then when you see the community start to transform, neighboring communities are probably thinking, what changed? I have to go figure out what is different about that community now. And that just, to me, seems like has to spread the gospel rapidly in those regions. Have you seen that happen?
1: Absolutely. And one of the things that I really appreciate is, you know, it's easy to look at, well, if only, you know, we would have this amount of resources, or if only someone else would come in and provide that, That then we could really see change. Then we could see change in our community. Then we'd be able to share the gospel in our community. And that all changes when you see your neighbor right down the road, who's living on the same street with the same circumstances, who starts on enterprise and it grows, or you see in your same denomination, you see your sister church do something to love their neighbors and you see the impact. It takes away from the, well, I could never do that. No, wait a minute. Did you guys see Peter doing that. Certainly, I could do that. (laughs) Or you see the other church saying, you know, we're going to have an outward-focused ministry that's going to help invest in the future of our community. You see a sister church do that, and then you start to ask, well, we could do that too. (laughs) So yeah, you're exactly right. That's such a good point. It's the power of proximate examples, not just something you see online or something that seems so fanciful or so foreign. There's power when it is proximate.
2: It reminds me of those home improvement shows where they go in and they select a family and they fix the whole house and they spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and they give them this dream home. I imagine what their neighbors must be thinking. Like, how did I not get picked for that? Like, that's just never going to happen for me. But this is literally the opposite where you can go in and through a loan model, a sustainable model, teach them skills, teach them the gospel, which then becomes available to the entire community, so it just seems incredibly well thought out, and i 'm not sure if that 's how it was planned initially, but to have that effect of relatability for so many people that maybe were lacking hope, just like you said is just a beautiful it 's a beautiful thing
1: to hear about Buty, can I just share a little bit of a uh, maybe riff on that for just one minute? But it was really interesting. We were doing a study in Haiti, trying to figure out how we were going to expand in, in Haiti. And one of the questions that was asked by my colleague, she asked a question to an individual that had a home that was in disrepair. And she said, well, what are the barriers for you improving your home? What are the barriers that you're facing from making progress? And the woman responded, if I improve my home, that means I will be less likely to be chosen. When the North American mission teams come to our community and do the extreme home makeover model. And I thought, Oh dear, we have created a model that is actually serving as a disincentive to make modest steps of improvement and still hold out on the charity lottery that you will be selected for some dramatic. And everything that we're talking about here is not dramatic. It is slow and it is incremental, but it is transformational over time. And in a similar way, what is the lie of the lottery in places of poverty? The lottery is, it exists in every single place where Hope International operates. And it is built on this false promise that the only way you're going to get ahead is if you've got the winning ticket. And so that just causes everyone to put their hopes and dreams on something that, statistically speaking, is an impossibility. And it stops them from doing what they can do, By instead of spending on that false hope, instead of spending money on that false dream, to actually start working together with your colleagues and do something that is going to be slower, it is going to be incremental, it is not going to be dramatic, but it is going to be far more transformative over time. So, lottery preys on individuals that believe that they have no hope, and unfortunately, it creates a trap—a poverty trap—that keeps people, yeah, stuck in their current situation.
0: And the other side of that is, it kind of creates almost a competition because if your neighbor is selected for that lottery, then by definition, that means that you are not selected, or somebody's not selected, and so the community micro enterprise model that you're talking about is very much inclusive where the people who are actually their greatest allies are the person down the street in your savings group or in your loan group. And that is ultimately what's going to glue a community together to be self-sustainable long-term.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well said.
0: So I know a lot of concepts that you've mentioned already kind of touch on it a little bit, but There are a lot of misconceptions about the poor, I think, especially in our culture in the U.S. And maybe you can summarize some of the greatest misconceptions that you hear or see, either just in how people speak about the poor or how you actually see things operate. And even with the lottery model that you're talking about kind of touches a lot on that. But what kind of misconceptions come to mind and how do you actually see things in terms of the many people that you have met?
1: There's a lot to unpack there. And I am still on the journey and understanding and unpacking and trying to get to be a better listener and to put aside my ideas and to listen more, speak less, especially about individuals. But And maybe we could put this in the show notes, but there is a book that's available for a free download that we wrote that addresses a lot of them. It's called Created to Flourish. And again, it's a free download for anyone that wants it to really dive in more. But I guess some of the core ones in terms of some of those pieces that I've learned are not true. And maybe just one thought too is, We have, as our mission statement, a few years ago, we had our mission statement to invest in the dreams of the poor as we proclaim and live the gospel. That's what we were all about. We want to be investing in the dreams of the poor. But when we were going through a process in opening a new branch office in the Republic of Congo, our country director said, I can't put that mission statement on the wall. And I I asked, why? (laughs) what do you mean? What is it? Does it not translate correctly? What is it? And he said, we can't call the people that we serve the poor. He said, that's like the starting point. We don't want to define them by their current challenge. We do not want that. And he was exactly right. So we changed our mission statement. We no longer even use the word the poor and much more of a people-centered language. So we invest in the dreams of families and we talk about people In poverty, as opposed to the identification of an adjective being used as a noun in that. And so I think that actually is part of the problem, Keelan. Part of the problem is that we identify individuals by their challenge. And I think about Anunciata. She was an individual that was in her 80s. She had lost her sight years ago. She was living in rural Rwanda. And I thought about her. We could describe her as she is the blind. She is the poor. She is the uneducated. And all those things, I think, disrespect this amazing, capable entrepreneur who is on the move. And she said, you know, I am going to provide for my kids and my grandkids. I will not beg. And she is going after it in her community. And so I guess that's maybe the first kind of you know thing that I would challenge us all to keep changing is... I don't want people to define me by my greatest challenge. I want to be known as Peter first or different different ways of describing me than just the current challenge. And in a similar way, I think we have to have eyes to see the capacity, the dignity of every single individual and be real careful that the words that we use, the way that we talk, the programs that we design are built in such a way that they honor individuals that are just like us created in the image of God. So I guess that's a starting point. And then leading from that, that changes everything. It changes us going in with any sense of a savior mentality and has us walk alongside as partners. It assumes capacity. It does not assume that unless they have my help, they won't be able to make progress. Like that is just dismantled that sort of a belief system. And instead it's, what are your dreams? What are your abilities? What is it that you want for your family, for your future? What is it that your church is already doing in your community? And it changes from, we're going to go in and do for you to a different posture. What can we do together? What can we do with you? And that changes a lot on that. So I could go on, but again, free download if anyone wants to dive into that a little bit further. So on this podcast, kind of the...
2: Foundational conversation is around generosity and everything that comes from that. And Keelan and I have both experienced generosity as a pathway or a doorway into a deeper faith. And that has been experiential and something that we would never trade. And I would love to hear from your perspective as we adopt and learn more about the exact things that you're talking about, how we perceive people that are maybe different or living in different conditions or have different challenges than us. What implications might that have in the way that we give
1: even in just a a North American mindset? Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite parts of scripture is when Paul is writing and he says this almost as an aside, but he says, what do you have that you did not receive? (laughs) And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you hadn't? And he's calling us. To a radical reframing of everything that we have. If we see everything that we have as a gift, that means we let go from the clenched fist to the open handed posture and approach and see everything as a gift. And, you know, one of the benefits of my job is when I travel around the world, I get a hard reset when I come home and I turn on hot water. I do not take that for granted after having gone a little time without it. When I get to go into the grocery store and see the abundance of food, I remember that is not reality for so much of the world. And then the things that you don't appreciate oftentimes quite as much, but rule of law. I don't worry about individuals Taking things that I have worked hard for, or if there is something that I would have a way of addressing that, and crazy things insurance insurance is amazing by the way, that we can mitigate some of our risk, and so there 's all these things in all these different layers, and I just increasingly want my life I want my family to live recognizing that everything that we have is a gift, and therefore. When you receive a gift, you say, thank you. <laughs> and then you hopefully have an eyes and a heart that say, and how can I go and do likewise? And that I think is the great invitation. As I realize just how much I've been given, how can I live with more love, with more generosity? And again, just the image of the tight fist versus the open hand. I just want to live life with hands and heart wide open. Yeah, because what do I have that I haven't been given? You kind of touched on this very briefly earlier, but I know Ukraine
0: is one of the major areas that you guys work in and from all the way from the very beginning with hope and the incredible suffering that has been going on in that region over the last year plus, I'm sure has dramatically impacted both the work that you guys do and the communities that you serve there and, and work beside. And I'd love to hear how you have seen God working through all of that suffering in the way that only God can to turn things for his glory.
1: Yeah, and it has been heartbreaking. We have three branch offices that are now in areas that are occupied by Russia. We have seen friends and children of staff members, whether it's being engaged in the conflict, or we have some that are now being held hostage as prisoners of war. This hits really close to home and and our hearts ache. And I think in some ways to only go to the, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's the opportunity without first like acknowledging this is terrible and again, I just kind of gone out of the headlines a little bit, there is real suffering that is still happening as a war is still going on. And when I see cities on the news, those are cities that we have staff, we have friends, we have colleagues, and it is still, yeah, the reality. You know, it's not uncommon when we're on a Zoom call for the meeting to end abruptly because the air raid sirens went on and The staff has to run with their family to the bomb shelter. That is still happening right now, every single day. So that's the challenge. But then to only focus on the challenge and not the opportunity is also problematic. And what we are seeing is that whenever a foundation is shaken, individuals ask the right question that ultimately, I believe, leads to Jesus. What is this all about? Do I have hope beyond just what I see and experience? Is it possible to experience God's peace in the midst of so much uncertainty? And I believe that there is a revival happening right now in Ukraine, and especially when churches were the very first ones to say, you're displaced, need a place to say, well, we're going to move our, you know, seats out of our church and we're going to put mattresses down and you are welcome here. And when a church has that level of response of warmth, of welcome, of food, of generator, that is where we see individuals that maybe would have never gone into a church in other situations, when they experience that level of welcome and love, I think that leads them to understand more about the God that we serve. So yes, it challenge is very real. And I just am so amazingly proud of our colleagues and of the Ukrainian church in the way that they've responded as well. Peter, what are you most excited about when you think about the future? You know, I guess there's something that I have been learning about from our global colleagues. And it's really been in this initiative that started with some of our global team, which is who are those individuals that are on the margins? Who are those individuals that in whatever it is, every country has their own power dynamics. Every country has their own story and historical situation. And I cannot read the gospels without recognizing how Jesus constantly was showing special attention to those. So whether it is, let the little children come unto to me, or whether it is hanging out with lepers or those that society ostracized, he just was constantly on the lookout for individuals that were made to feel other or ostracized. And In a similar way, I love that our team, whether it is our colleagues in the Dominican Republic that said, you know what? You know who's really marginalized in our community? It's the Haitian refugees that are working in the sugarcane fields that are not seen as residents, as legal residents, and they are not treated well. Let's go serve them. Or whether it's in Ukraine and whether it's the Roma population and saying, you know, they have always been not treated real well, or whether it's in Rwanda and one of the Groups is seen as not having even the same status in terms of citizenship. They're called the tois, And so how do we go and love and serve in those communities? And I am most excited about ways that I'm seeing the global colleagues follow in the way of Jesus to say, who is not invited? Let's go out into the streets. Let's bring them into the party and let's make sure that they experience Christ's love. Yeah, active, intentional prioritized i get pretty excited when i hear those types of stories yeah absolutely well as we get to the end of the
0: episode here i did want to leave some time for our managers minute we like to end every episode with a practical action our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage god's wealth
1: wisely so peter do you have a suggestion for our listeners today Yeah, I mean, there's kind of two different layers on that. One is if anything resonated with Hope International, you can learn more at hopeinternational.org. And instead of taking my word for it on our website, we love to elevate the stories of those that we serve. And so have a listen to some of those stories, some of the videos that are available. So that's one area. I guess the other piece, which is maybe a little bit different, but I am so convinced that we are just... We are stronger when we are in relationship with each other. And in many ways, what I see in the families that we serve around the world, as they're engaging in enterprise, as they're gathering together in groups, I guess I see an opportunity both at an individual and organizational level to say, what if we could learn from them? What if we could take a few more steps in prioritizing relationships, in inviting individuals into our home and saying, who is not invited to the party in our community? And how can I just welcome them for a meal? Who are the refugees that have been in our community that maybe I can do something? So in some ways, I think this is a moment to learn from the global church and to apply in our own communities, the simple act of radical hospitality, of friendship, of relationship, and I just think good things happen when we live with that sort of a posture and approach. So, yeah. And then just lastly, I can be of any help. You know, I'd love to try and do it. I do love writing on the side. So if any of the books or anything would be helpful, you can learn more at But That's a list of kind of resources that we have that we kind of made available for others as well. So anyway, thanks for asking the question. And I hope all of us keep taking steps to do what is not a new idea but let's figure out how we love God and love our neighbor and let's do it with everything that we have.
0: Amen to that. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Peter. This has been a fantastic conversation and so grateful for the work that you and the rest of the HOPE team all over the world are doing to make Christ more known. So thank you for all of that and for your time today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at FinishLinePledge, Pledge, through our website at FinishlinePledge.com, or by email at hello at Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at slash episode 71. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.